So, we're in Parsha's Noach, the second Parsha in the entire Torah. Oh, Noach. The Parsha of Noach. Noah and the flood. Everyone knows the story of Noach. Mm-hmm. But we're going to learn a teaching from the Rebbe from 1992 on this week's Parsha. Last week we started and we studied Parsha's Bereshis, Genesis. We began the Torah all over again, as we do every year on Simcha's Torah, right after Sukkot is over. We re-begin the Torah. So, we are beginning now the second part of the week. So, in Genesis, we hear about the creation of the world, the creation of Odom and Chava, Adam and Eve. We hear about the descent of the generations. Each generation goes down and down and down and gets worse and worse and worse. There's a degradation of the generations. Each generation goes down after Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve ate from the, the tree. Their son, in fratricide, murder. Cain killed Hevel. Cain killed Abel. Then we have the next generation of idolatry. It was the first generation of idolatry. And then each generation got more and more depraved as the generations went on. Until God says, decide to destroy the world. And repopulate the world through Noah and his wife, and their three sons and their three wives. So it was four couples aboard the ark that was to be the new progenitors of the human race. From Noah and his family, we have the entire birth of humanity. The entire world population comes from Noah and his wife. And so each generation that goes by until Noah went, got worse and worse and worse. Each generation was more immoral and more immoral until God said, we got to hit the reset button on creation, on humanity. And it says, Noah in his time was a righteous man, a very righteous man, that he was precious to Hashem, precious to God. In fact, if we look at the verse of this week's Parsha, it's Ela Toldos Noach Noach. God says his name two times in a row, showing on how precious he was to God. And we hear about the flood. Noah built an ark. He, his ark was to be a harbinger of the destruction of the world to come. And people mocked him. People did not listen to that sign that he was creating. And the entire world was destroyed. On the boat, you have two of every animal and seven of every kosher animal. It was seven of every kosher animal and two of every non-kosher animal. And it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. But not only did it rain there by symbolizing above to below, it also opened up the thermal vents in the ocean and the waters from below the earth in the ocean also opened up as well. So there was two floods, sort of say, two movements of flooding. There was a flood from above to below and below to above. And this symbolizes very deep things mystically. Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, talks at length about this. And... The world was subsumed in the deluge of the flood. Noah and his family become the only humans on earth. And they repopulate the world. And God says, I'm going to give you a rainbow in the sky as a reminder that I will never destroy the world again. A rainbow is a very controversial thing. Not only only nowadays, 
they stole it from the hippies. I don't know how they got it, but the rainbow got the rainbow gatherings. The hippies they took our rainbow, but also the hippies took the Jewish people's rainbow and the world's rainbow. What does the rainbow symbolize? On one hand, the rainbow symbolizes that God is angry and He's withholding His wrath. Right? It's almost like putting a uh, like a reminder on your phone, like don't get angry right now, <laughs> don't be angry, don't get angry. So the rainbow was a reminder. To God, sort of say that I'm not going to destroy the world again, and God says there are whenever you see a rainbow in the sky, no, I could be angry, and I'm withholding my wrath, withholding my negativity. So therefore, it's a negative thing because God's angry. On the other hand, it shows on something tremendously positive. It shows on refracted light. What is a rainbow? We know the cover of Pink Floyd, right? Dark side of the moon. You have the prism. And you have a, a one beam of light going in, and you have the refracted light, the spectrum of light, thank you, of light coming out of the prism on the other side. So the entire spectrum shows on refinement of balance, right? In a rainbow, there's no color, it's like more than the other. They're all the spectrum, is the entire spectrum of color, Roy G. Biv, right? The violet to red, all the way, all the way across the entire. Uh, spectrum of color, thereby showing that the world's physicality has been uplifted, that we have refined the world. And there's a very amazing teaching that says that it's also a sign of Mashiach in the world, because it says that the human beings, we have created such a refinement of creation that God shows us a rainbow saying, I agree, sort of say, a, a, a confirmation of, of the process of, of refining the world. So, that's Noach in a nutshell. The parsha of Noah in a nutshell. Yeah. Two floods coming from above, right, right. from beneath to above. Right. Uh, you said it's a deep symbol. What is? Ah, <coughs> oh, that's a good question. So I taught this class two years ago. Well, COVID <laughs> three years ago, a couple of years ago. It's amazing. There's a talk from the Rebbe also in the nineties. And the Rebbe says, and it brings, there's a Zohar, a Kabbalah mm -hmm. teaching from about 2,000 years ago. And there it says in the year 5600, which corresponds on the English calendar to 1840, 1840, there'll be another flood. There'll be another flood. So 2,000 years ago, they prophesy forward 1,800 years. And they say, and in the Zohar of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the Rajbi, it explains there that in about 1800 years, he says, there's going to be another flood. 1840. Does anyone know what happened in 1840? On the account, Wikipedia, 1840. What does it say? Industrial Revolution. The war. Nope. nope. Industrial, Industrial Revolution. Revolution. Industrial Revolution. Okay. So he says, this is the flood from below. This is human efforts civilizing the world, making the world a more civilized place, making the world a better place by using science, technology, industry, all these things, is where we got the information age from. We can trace everything back to basically, I think it's 1842 to be exact, the combustion engine, you know, smelting of metals, different alloys, all these different things that came out of the Industrial Revolution, processing of food better, all these things came out from that 1840. So that's the below to above. That's the, the vents of the, of, the, of the ocean opening up. What's the above to below? Right then we had the first printing of a book. It's actually facing you on the wall right here called the Kuti Torah. 
don't know if you can read the cover. I don't. It's facing there because it didn't fit in my bookshelf. It's one of the most famous books of Jewish mysticism from the first Chabad Rebbe. And it's on every Parsha of the week, the mystical dimension of the Parsha. Really? Yeah, like the Hasidic dimension of the Parsha. So he takes like Parsha's Noach and he gives you like, this is the mysticism of that Parsha. And to this day, like thousands of people learn this Shabbos morning before they hear the Torah being read. They hear the mystical, they, they study the mystical Hasidic Parsha before they begin services in the morning and hear the actual Torah being read. So it became like kind of this like oral Torah of Jewish mysticism that was revealed to the world. And it caught on in the world like wildfire. It literally changed the whole tenor of the way we study Jewish mysticism to this day. So that's from above. That's exactly right. So it's from above. So when we have both movements. So 1840 was a tremendous year of prophecy. But guess what? The Rebbe brings this out for us in 1990. And he says, this was a sign of Mashiach. That you saw that these two movements that happened simultaneously, human innovation, godly innovation, meeting in the middle is a beautiful thing. No longer are there two dichotomous elements, two opposite elements at work here. You know, that technology is somehow bad. Or that Jewish mysticism can't be handled by the average person. Now everybody has full access to a better life physically and a better life spiritually. And this is a, it was a tremendous innovation. You know, can't be underestimated the, uh, the power of both of these uh, things coming together. So that's standing on one foot in a very, <laughs> very tight nutshell, what uh, the, 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 the uh, waters from below and the waters from above represent uh, to us. It's one is the, is the human innovation and then the godly innovation also. So the um, Parsha of Noah is an all-encompassing Shabbos. It's one of these, like, you know, every kid who goes to Hebrew school or even any Bible school knows the story of Noah and the flood. But also it follows up from Bereshit's Genesis, which everybody literally knows. Everybody knows it. And we finished a month of holidays, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkis, Shemitah Tzeres, Simchas Torah, and then Shabbos Bereshis. And now we return to the action. This is the first Parsha where we're really like kind of like back in the mundane world. We're back to daily life. Like literally, you could say today, actually Thursday, this today, was the first day back to life. Why? Because it was Rosh Chodesh. The first of the month was yesterday. And the first day, there were two days Rosh Chodesh. Two days were the end of the month. So we closed off the month of the holidays, literally on Wednesday. And today was the first day we returned to the action. And it's actually showing us something very deep. Is that the main job of a person is to make harmony in the world. To make harmony in the world. And the word Noach means tranquility, means rest, literally means rest. So it's, it's almost like a misnomer. On one hand, we're saying, get back to work. <laughs> On the other hand, God's saying, it's a partial of rest. So how do we reconcile these two things? On one hand, there's a rest for the spirit after you work. Like, what is it about now? We're getting back to work. And it says that God rested on the seventh day, which is Shabbos. So the word Noach comes to the word Ve'yanach which means to rest. It says, 
rest on the seventh day. God rested on the seventh day, so we rest on the seventh day. God rested on Shabbat from Friday night to Saturday night. We also rest on Shabbat. So Shabbos, Bereshis, Genesis, is almost like the work before the work. It's an all-encompassing Shabbos before the work begins. And then we go into Noach, and it parallels it, but rather it comes after we've already began. So the goal of a human being's work is not just work for the sake of work. The work of a human being is in order to achieve some level of balance and harmony within one's life. That's why we have Shabbos. We need Shabbos. Every culture has a day of rest. Every culture experiences rest on some level. Some have siesta in the middle of the day, or, or they have a month off in, like, in, uh, Spain has, like, you take tea, take tea at noon in England, you have siesta, you have, you have, every culture has rest. But as Jews, we have a godly rest. God rested, we rest. We rest on a godly schedule, not when we feel that it's time for tea and, uh, and crumpets and uh, white cake. It's time for us. Shabbat is God-given. It's a God-given thing. It's in the natural cycle of the week, so to say, but it is a day for Hashem, a day for God. So on one hand, we began the work week today, and then two days from now, Shabbos, Noach, we, God says, there's a goal here. The goal is tranquility. The goal is harmony and balance. So there's a common theme. Bereshis, Genesis, and Noach share this amazing common theme where Bereshis talks of creation, and Noach speaks of God's promise at the end to continue that creation. It might have seemed like all was lost, but God said, Noach, and you and your family, you are going to be the, the future of the human race, literally the beginning of the human race again. So there's the beginning of the human race in Genesis, and there's the beginning of the human race again in Parshish Noach. So in Genesis, it didn't work out so well. In Noach, we see a promise, perpetuity, forward thinking, movement. There's always going to be growth from Noach. God is never again going to destroy the world like he did with the flood. There's a promise from God. So God said, although I made a perfect world in Genesis, in Bereshis, it can fall. I'm going to give, and it led to destruction. It led to immorality. It led to like a lack of civilization. Once Noah started, begins civilization. Begins a civilized way of living. In fact, when God took Noah and his family off the boat, what did he say? I gave you seven Noahide laws. Seven laws for all creation. And there was no Jews at this time. There was no Torah yet given. There was no godly commands. But God says, in order to ensure civilization, here's seven laws. The seven Noahide laws. And this is for Noah and all humanity in perpetuity as the laws of humanity. In fact, in 1991... There was a joint resolution of both houses of Congress, both parties, believe it or not, <laughs> came together and ratified the seven Noahide laws as the basis for all civilization in America. They said, without these, I can quote it exactly if you give me a second, but they said, without these laws, we will crumble into chaos and immorality as a society. But the bedrock of our civilization is the seven Noahide laws. That was 1991, I believe it was like April 91, both houses of Congress passed this. I mean, it's amazing to think about it, but it's so real. That, how amazing is Judaism that we automatically assume the best of humanity? 
And God assumes the best in us. He says, here's the laws. He doesn't give a law in order that we don't fulfill it. He gives a law in order to fulfill it and thereby to refine his creation. So every person by nature wants to fulfill what God wants. We honestly believe that. We honestly sincere that. There's no like sinner and God or no evil and God. God is everything. So by nature, God gave. God, I'm sorry. By nature, every person wants to do what God wants. And God said, here's the seven Noah laws to ensure the growth of civilization. Here is the rectification of God's creation. Like we said last week, that on one hand, you could look at Genesis as a complete, perfect world. On the other hand, you could look at the Genesis creation as something that needs human participation to fix it, to repair it. Okay, so let's turn to page 30. So here is an amazing concept. It says the world was created with hidden energies. Noah, by his avodah, by his work, brought these to light. Noah saw a new world. The parsha of Noah, the Torah portion of Noah, speaks of a perfect world, which even after its fall could still be purified. In the case that God would somehow want to bring darkness and destruction again, a rainbow appears and God says, I will see it and remember my promise for the entire world. Noah's work, his avoda, his service in refining this lowly world brought about calm, tranquility, harmony, balance, a divine spirit bringing the creator's anticipated dwelling place for himself into the lower worlds to be completed. So the story of creation is God's plan. Noah puts man's place in its rightful place to rectify the world. Noah says, he stands up, he says, I'm going to rectify the world. And the world he encountered before the flood was one of violence, of one of negativity and depravity. But Noah eventually lived to see a new world. The advancement of spiritual status of the world, we find that at the end of Genesis, it says Noah found favor in the eyes of God. His capacity for seeing the vision that God sort of say saw was so unique, was so amazing. And God says, I want that, that's who I want to create my world from. Someone who shares my vision. They don't just look at themselves as part of the plan, but they share the godly vision. They see a bigger picture. They see the ability to bring rectification and harmony to a place of chaos, to a place of negativity. And that's Noah's amazing quality. He has an amazing quality, not just that he says, I'm not a sinner, not a bad guy, like everybody else. You know, like if your kid is like, comes home from school and says, oh, my whole class got in, in trouble today, but I didn't. What were they doing? Who knows, they were destroying something. It's like, of course you don't do that. What's the question? Like when you're so special, like I ho sincerely hope you don't <laughs> fall in with the bad kids. Like that you're not supposed to. It's like not, shouldn't be a novelty. There's no novelty in not, 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 not like, committing violence. Like, oh, I didn't kill anybody today. Oh, okay, great. Noah, you're not that special really, buddy. You know, like, I'm sorry. You don't get a free boat and a yacht and animals and everything like this for that. But instead, what Noah did, he shared a vision of understanding that the world needs rectification. There's not just this blueprint that's been carried out by Genesis and implemented and God says, set the world on like cruise control and just going, going, going. There's a movement. There's a goal. 
There's a trajectory that we're supposed to follow. And, God, and human beings are the essential cog in that trajectory that we're going down. And that creation begins in the beginning. God creates heaven and earth. And God creates the world through all his names and the words and everything like this. Amazing stuff. Creates the natural order. But then he comes to create the world and now it's natural life and everything around it. And then the avoda, the service of Noach is that he finds favor in the eyes of Hashem. In the revealed world, he consciously reveals a godliness. He consciously reveals something unique. When you find favor in someone, you're not like, oh, you didn't kill anybody. Good job. That's not favorite. That's not, that's not, there's nothing, fav- there's nothing special about that. What's special? When you do something to stand out positively, not only in spite of the negative surroundings, but when you stand out positively and take a proactive stance and become a force within nature to uplift your surroundings, not just to fall into the ways of the world around you, not just to be subsumed with the natural forces. That, yeah, the world is going to go on. The world's going to continue in perpetuity. God promised it. But the question is, what are we doing within that spectrum? What are we doing within the multitudinous possibilities of the life we've been giving, of the world that has been created, that we, are, that we find ourselves in? What are we doing about it? So Noah comes to say that my job is to bring rectification. My job is to bring harmony. And God confirms it. And when he, he finds him as, favor, as favorable because of his, his, his worldview, and then afterwards, he says, I'm codifying it. I'm putting it in the heavens. I'm putting the rainbow up there. So everyone can see these are the seven laws. These are the seven colors of the rainbow. This is the entire spectrum of the world. And everybody can fall into this worldview that Noah shared. This amazing worldview of civilization, of betterment, of improvement, of, of, of a life that's not just seeing themselves as an animal or as a plant or as part of this natural order. You know, like some sort of Luddite who like says, when I become more animalistic, then I'm more balanced, then I'm more, you know, that's not, that's, not, that's not the human way. A human being is head and shoulders literally above the animal kingdom. And that's our job is to see ourselves as being a protagonist within God's creation. So one of the interesting things is, is says that when God created the world, he used the word, his name, God has many names. When a, what is a name? A name does not talk to the essence of, of, of the person or the thing, right? Like a cup is called a cup in, in, in English, but in other languages it's called many different things. Does it change the nature of this thing? Absolutely not. It's still the same cup. A name is what you're just called. It's, it's superficial to the essence of the person, of the essence of the thing. So God has many names. And the way God uses his names is the way he kind of interfaces with the world. The reason we have a name is like 99% of the time for other people, not for us. I mean, people call us by a name and I respond to that name, but you need someone to call you by that name. I mean, the name is, is so superficial that it's just, it's found more for another than it is for you yourself. If a person could exist in a bubble that would never need a name necessarily. But a name has tremendous power, see, because it does bring out certain qualities of the person, especially the person's Jewish name. So God has names. And the name that God used to create the world is called Elohim. Elohim is God's name that signifies discipline, boundaries, 
limitation. But yet he used this to create the world. He used the name Elohim to be able to create the world. Bereshis Bara Elohim. Begin the beginning. God, when we say God in that first sentence of the entire Torah, it's the name Elohim. God has many names, but the name Elohim is what he used to create the world. Measurement, boundary, discipline. You could even say severity. But it also has a numerical equivalency. In, in Hebrew, every letter has a number. And every word has an addition of all of its composite of the letters as one number. And the name Elohim shares the exact number with Teva. Teva means nature, natural order of things. Famous Israeli pharmaceutical company called Teva. Teva. Yeah, Teva Pharmaceuticals. There's a store in the Brooklyn. Yeah, what's that? The biggest one. The biggest, yeah. They actually, uh, there's a, a, a new drugstore opened up in Brooklyn. And they got a letter in the mail, don't call it, called Teva, and they got sued. <laughs> they had to change the name of the, uh, the, the drugstore. But it means natural order, the natural order. The number's 86, by the way. If you want the actual number, it's 86. Elikim shares the same numerical value as the Hebrew word for Teva. So God and nature. But it's the natural order of God. The natural part of God that limits, that conceals, that defines reality. What is 86 number? 86. Yeah, Elohim and Teva. Right. They share that number. Uh, but that number is um, come into play when uh, in the book of Zohar? Zohar? Yeah. It, it, I mean, it mentions it in the Zohar, yeah. But it's, it's just, if you just add up the letters, like you could, anybody who has the name Elohim, so Aleph is one, Lamed is 30. There is nothing really derives out of that, out of the number. What do you mean but, derives out of the number? I don't know. Uh, um, I've heard that some um, Kabbalah, uh, everything is kind of numbered. And, uh, so this is that. So this is exactly, this is exactly that. So what's like if like, so according to Kabbalah, what's the biggest symmetry, a likeness of these two things? It's God, Elohim, and Teva, nature. They have the same. They have the same. They number. So that shows on on, on a similarity uh, of the two. Okay. So that's the Kabbalistic, like kind of unpacking of these two words. Okay. Like so, if you add up all the letters of each word, you get the same number. So that number and that numerical value shows that when God created the world, what was it? It was a of a natural order, of a natural order. But God himself is transcendent of the natural order. So what's God's transcendent name? The name of Hashem is Havaya, a Yud and a He and a Vav and a He, which is number 26. So this name of Hashem is totally distinct, the opposite. The name of Yud and He and Vav and He, Havaya, is infinite is not limited, is beyond boundary, is beyond conception even, of, of, of not only the natural order, but completely supra-natural, beyond natural in every way, shape, or form. Like there's no touching it, there's no conception of it, there's no, there's no um, experiencing it in any way we can comprehend, because the minute you do, you're putting limits on it, and it's the unlimited name of God, the, literally the infinite name of God, if you would. And so the whole job is, is to bring the harmony 
between Havaya and Elohim. And by using the Teva, the natural order of the world, therefore we bring the, the enlivening, vivifying, infinite force of Havaya, and we bring it down into Teva, the natural order of Elohim. That's the job. The job is, is that whatever is shrouded in nature, we think of nature as revealing. I go in nature, I feel amazing, I feel wonderful. I go and see the leaves changing, I see the mountains, I see rivers, I see oceans, I feel wonderful, I feel see the horizon, and it's very, very expansive. But that's so limiting compared to the inner feeling that I could have when I con connect to the name of Havaya, of infinite God. And so the job is, is that we have to bring the infinite down here into the finite. That nature is a concealing factor. A, if you could, you could count the number of dust particles in the world, a number of mountains in the world, the number of, of waves in the ocean right now. You could do it. It's finite. God is completely beyond that, completely transcending that. So we our job is to bring the infinite Havaya into full view through the vivifying force of the world into the natural order of what we find ourselves in. And this was what Noah innovated. He innovated this process. And we see that it's an innovation. Why? Because it's going to happen in perpetuity. It's happening through us. We're human beings. We all come from Noah. We don't only all come from Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve. They had children that don't exist anymore. I mean, literally that generational line is cut off. But all of us, every single one of us, come from Noah and his sons and their wives and his wife. So our job is, is to bring that infinite godliness down here into view. So making it part of who we are. And if you look at it, it's very interesting. It carries forward the last moments of Yom Kippur. If you remember the last moments of Yom Kippur called Ne'ilah, the highest service of the entire year, the highest prayer service of the entire year, where we leave the ark open the entire time. It's the only time we pray five times in one day. It's the last service of Yom Kippur. We say the declaration Shema Yisrael, Baruch Shem Kavod Machuto Le'elam Va'ed. And we say Hashem Hu HaElokim. Havaya Hu HaElokim. These two names again. We say Havaya, the infinite, is the, in the finite. The vivifying force is in the limiting force. And these two forces are the same force. They all come from one Hashem, one God. The higher level is descending and entering into the world. That's Yom Kippur. We were completely, quote unquote, divorced from the world. We weren't eating. We, were, we, weren't, uh, we were fasting. We were praying all day. We weren't you know, having a Yom Tov meal. We weren't doing all the things that usually Jewish holidays are filled with. Completely fasting, completely praying. That's all. We were, we were very spiritual. But at the end of it, we say, we, we send out this like, clarion call. Infinite should be found in finite. We're not supposed to be ascetics who divorce ourselves from the world 364 days a year. That's one day. To remind us, that's, that's really a high level. But afterwards, the, the, the call out is, Hashem ho ha'elikim. And this comes out, and we say, Noach comes and says, where do we get this from? Who's the innovator of this? And it's Noah.
So as nature continues, we look at nature and to our sensibilities, that seems infinite, pretty infinite, right? The sun comes up, the sun goes down, the moon comes out, the stars come out. Day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out. Constant cycle, perpetuity. You know, if we look at the world, we might think the world has always existed the way we see it. The only thing we see, I was saying to my, my kids in the car this morning, driving them to school actually, I said, you know, the world has gone, undergone crazy changes. Crazy changes. We look at the world and we say, the world's always been this way, but human beings have contributed to buildings and cars and roads and science and technology. And we have altered somehow something that to our sensibility always remained in perpetuity the same exact way. When the truth of the matter is the world has undergone tremendous turmoil and upheaval. The flood, it says, the flood itself prematurely aged the world. They say when someone goes through trauma, they get gray hairs in their beard. Mm. When I went to visit my in-laws six years ago, I started getting gray. <laughs> you ever see a president after four years, after eight years? Yeah. What happens? They look like they've been through uh, the worst yeah, war. Oh my goodness. You see like Bill Clinton when he first came, he's like a young guy playing the saxophone. Like darkish hair. At the end, he just looks like, oh my goodness, what happened to this man? He comes out looking like Skeletor from He-Man. He looks like, he looks like, oh my goodness, he looks like he's in a Halloween costume. Like Barack Obama or any of the presidents. You know, uh, Bush won after four years. If you see him before and after Desert Storm and the economy and everything. Oh my goodness, the man looked like he aged like crazy. And they go on. Thank God, most presidents live a pretty long life after they're in office. Like Jimmy Carter's still kicking, you know, like. Yeah. About that guy. Yeah, I know everyone did. Try for the best. Uh, I don't know, like ninety something. I don't know, <laughs> but the point is, is like you see a guy go through trauma. Anyone goes through trauma, they age prematurely because it's like they're shaking. You know what I think? One of these things that's like I hate to say it for our corner of the world, Hurricane Sandy. Hurricane Sandy. After Hurricane Sandy, it was almost like it's like COVID. Also, you could say COVID, but I always thought Hurricane Sandy. Like after Hurricane Sandy, people were like on eggshells for a long time after that. It was very traumatic. A lot of devastation. A lot of devastation. It was very disturbing. It was like, wow. What, like, and it was like shocking. We didn't know how bad it was really going to be and everything else. And it was like, people were just like, oh, wow. You know, I've never seen anything like that. And it's like, you see that. So after the flood, the world went through trauma. Like, it, the, the rocks, the, the minerals, the world like went through a trauma. It was like a shock to the system. We're still living post-traumatic stress, I guess, the world it has. And it's our job to innovate, to fix that. But to our going back to our sensibilities, nature keeps going the same way. It doesn't look like it's gone through trauma. We, we see the world tomorrow. It doesn't look that much different than it was the day before. Okay, human beings innovate, you know, new teams win the World Series, other ones don't. The world goes on, the stock market goes up, it goes down, okay. But the fact is, is that within that seemingly like perpetual cycle of nature, there has to be an infinity unfolding within it. It's a very powerful thing. And specifically, Noah brought this into view for us. He brought the fact that there's unseen spiritual energies in the world that have to be brought to the surface and that there's godly light streaming into the world that enables it to remain in continuity. 
to enable to see the continuous nature and the contiguous nature of, of time stretch out and space maintain itself, that he saw that there's Hashem's divine promise in the world is saying that there's going to be a world order and that's going to be the natural order of the world. And he says, here's the sign of the rainbow in the cloud to show you that it will be this way. And that the job of humanity is, is to somehow reflect the divine energy in the world and show it into the world. It means to say to take the divine energy and to manifest it in the world. That's our job. And when you see people who are proactive, who are caring, who are compassionate, who have empathy, or who are motivated for another person, they're actually doing that. They're actually bringing that into the world. They're actually bringing harmony and balance into the world. If you see a person who's completely self-involved, a narcissistic person, they, 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 there's no room for anybody else. There's no, there's no balance. There's no, there's no, there's no um, symmetry in that person's life. And it's missing something very, very deep. So we have to constantly be at work to find corners of our universe that need our light or need God's light. And we're just the ambassador to bring that light into that dark corner of this world. Whether it's in our own psyche, whether it's in our own hearts, or whether it's in our sphere of influence outside of us into the world. It says an amazing thing. Commentaries on Parshas Noach talk about how even the star systems and the orbits and the galaxies and everything that's even not in our galaxy, but outside of our galaxy, everything in the universe outside of our, even our sphere of where we have consciousness of or are aware of, continues on without change or stop. The sun, the moon, the star systems, their continuous orbit, all of these things are a constant and consistent thing. And so there's something that's motivating that continuity. We think of it like centrifugal force, right? Objects in motion stay in motion, like physics, right? But the fact is there's an endless energy also entering in. Meaning to say the fact that we see these things as contiguous, one step after another, without break, without stop, and continuous. They don't ever just like break down and like all of a sudden fall apart. Means to say this is a reflection of God also. This is a godly thing because God for sure doesn't have any stop. The one above for sure doesn't have any breakdowns, doesn't have any mixes up in the in the in the in the matrices of, of who he is, so to say. In fact, it says, Ani Havai I am God, I do not change. God does not change. And the fact that we see from our perception again that the world doesn't change is reflective of that godliness that doesn't change. Get that? It's kind of a hard that concept to understand. Meaning to say, like the fact that, you know, the earth, other than like human contribution, everything stays the same, you know? The sun goes up, the sun goes down, the moon comes out. It does. It's not like you know. The other day, the moon didn't come up. I'm really concerned about this. You know, like oh well, it was a new month and like the month. The moon. But like, it's really like it's a reflective of a godly energy. So when God says, "I set my rainbow in a cloud," again, the rainbow is the reflection of the sun's rays in the clouds, and the clouds are rising from the earth, 
became so purified that they could finally refract light and show the brilliance of the sun, not only as one ray, but as a refracted ray, and show you the entire spectrum of light. As it, when a sun hits a cloud and refracts light, you see the spectrum. You realize that that light that's there is not just the white or yellow light that I perceived it as, but rather, what is it? There's so much more there. There's so much more energy there that I ever could have known. It's like, you know, like, how do you know the red I see is the same red you see? There's no way to prove it. There's no way to prove that the red I see is your red. But we do know there's a spectrum of light, the way light is refracted into many different, into the seven different colors. And we do know it exists that way. I can't prove to you that my red is your red. Maybe it's not. Maybe that's why I like blue and you like red and you like green, and you like purple. I don't know why. But the fact of the matter is there's so much more to the world we see with our physical eyes that science has uncovered. It goes back to what we said about the science. Science has uncovered this. You know, the world is not just what we see with our eyes. There's so much more going on. When we see a light coming from the sun, we don't realize that if you could just put a cloud in front of it or crystalline structure in front of it or a prism in front of it, you would see so much more. There's so much going on. Same light. All it went through was a clear prism. The clearer the prism, the clearer the refraction. And then you see the entire spectrum. You see so much more, so much uncovered. This is what Noah brought spiritually to the world. He says, there's a God in the world. To your eyes, you might not see him. To your eyes, you might not have perception of an infinite vivifying force of the world. But I tell you, it's there. You have to bring harmony to the world in order to perceive it. But if you're just going to behave like an animal, sorry. You're just going to see one light. You'll see a yellow light in your life or a white light, whatever color. You'll just see the sun. You'll see light. You'll see what is. Eat, sleep, drink, wake up again. Eat, sleep, drink, wake up again. But rather, you have to uncover it. You have to be able to refine it. You have to be able to put that crystalline structure in front of the light to show there's so much more. And same thing with Hashem, with God. There's not just a God up there. There's a God down here. And it's our job to reveal Him in the darkest corners in the, of this world wherever we can. And so Noah in, innovated this whole situation. And he said, there's much more going on here than you could ever imagine. And, he said, and people said, what's your proof? Rainbow in the sky. Rainbow in the sky. Where do you think it came from? came from a pure white light that was from the sun. He said, there you see refraction, yeah? That's also going on too in your mind, in your heart. Your mind is not just your own mind. Your heart's not your own mind. God's there. God's with you. God's in your mind. God's in your heart. God's in your soul, for sure. And he says, it's up to you to bring it out, to reveal it, to show that you are a person of dynamism. You have different energies going on within you. And you can, ref you can refine, refine yourself to be able to refract your light. So it's an amazing thing to understand it in this context. So what the Rebbe is saying here in this, in this discourse is so special. It's saying that each one of us has the ability to see within the creation, the creator. To see within something that seems so simple and so repetitive and so natural, <laughs> you have to use a better word, so natural, see something so beyond natural. And that's what Parshish Nach comes to teach us. And so 
And if we are able to perceive the presence of the creator within creation, it's an amazing thing because if you look at the creation, there's no evidence of God. God didn't, God like covered up his footsteps. God concealed his, you know, didn't leave a breadcrumb trail for us to follow. You know, sometimes people think, you know, if I, uh, I'm searching for God my whole life, I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking. I'm sorry, there's not any breadcrumbs. There's no trail to follow back to God. In fact, Einstein himself is a very interesting, um, interesting note. I believe it was, I believe it was Gandhi wrote to Einstein. He wrote one line. What do you do? He wrote, what do you do? I have to look this up to see if it's verifiable, but I've heard it my, for 25 years, probably. What do you do? And Albert Einstein wrote back one line. I trace the lines back to the creator. I follow the lines back to the creator. That's what Einstein said he does. And he's a scientist, a secular man, a man, not, not a godly man. But I, tra I trace the lines, I follow the lines back to the creator. I gotta find the exact text of how it exactly written, but that was the line. One line, one line, that was it, two of the greatest uh, people. This is what it was. This is what he does. But I hate to tell Einstein this. There's no lines you can follow if you look in nature. E equals MC squared and, and the quantum mechanics and uh, the Higgs boson particle and the God particle. And so we should, science is awesome. Science is great. We should do those things. We should explore. We should be looking for that. We should delve into those things as a, as a human race. We're explorers, we're adventurers. This is a positive. But guess what? To really find the essence of God, the Havaya, the, the Yud and Hey and Vav and Hey, the infinite, there's only one thing that can result from it is not looking in nature, it's looking beyond nature. And Noah took this innovation of human innovation to say that what can result of it is only knowing God Himself. What results from our individual dynamism is knowing our Creator. How do we understand it? Only God can create something from nothing. Human beings can only create something from something, right? Get all the astronomers of the world, get all the scientists, the, the quantum physicists, the neurologists, the artists, put artists there, put musicians there, and don't give them any guitars, laboratory equipment, anything, zero, nothing, and say, create the wing of a fly. Create a piece of dust. What are they going to do? Sorry, what time is lunch? <laughs> we, can't, we can't do anything. We need something to create something. We need fodder. We need stuff. We need metal or plastic or clay or wood or something. We need equipment. We need instruments. We need, we need stuff. What about internet? We need internet. If we gave them internet, still can't create a wing of a fly. But you need something to create something. So if internet is something. So if you gave someone internet, eventually, you know, now we have, um, what are they, um, 3D, say, okay. 3D printers, right? So you still something need of, of, to create something in Latin, ex nihilo, to create something from nothing is an impossibility by a created entity. But God is not cre a created entity. He's a creator. So he can create ex nihilo. He can create something from nothing, from zero. A human being can't. 
So when a human being says, I want to find God, good luck. Maybe you find him on the internet. <laughs> Maybe you can find him. You bring him there. God's already on board. You don't have to go find him. He's already on board. He's in you. He's in your mind. He's in your heart. He's in you. He's already on board. When you pray to God, you're not praying to someone up there or someone out there praying in here. Pray to yourself. I mean, that's really what God's saying. He's saying, you're my ambassador in this world. You bring me wherever you go. You bring me to the far corners of your reality. You bring light there. You bring refracted light there. And this is your job. So only God can create something from absolutely nothing. This is from the Zohar in Kabbalah. And it's also brought by the second Chabad Rebbe, the Mitla Rebbe. The Rebbe quotes it here. And he explains even deeper. I mean, it's a very deep treatise on this, on this concept. But the whole job of a Jew is to bring the something from nothing to realize it's really nothing from something. I'll leave yes. you with that. <laughs> the job is to bring... Nothing from something. I'm nothing. I'm zero. This table's not really real. For sure we know the news isn't really real. <laughs> For sure we know like this world is like, it's all real. It's all real because God created it. God says it's existing. God says light exists, dark exists, cows exist, I exist, plants exist, rocks exist, everything exists. It's real. But it's all, the real something is God. The real something is God. I'll put it that way. The real something the one above and Noah began this process of revealing it. he just began it he was an innovator or the, he wasn't even an influencer because he had no one to influence it was just him and his family <laughs> he, he only had he only had five followers his wife his three sons uh, sorry seven followers his three daughter-in-laws three sons and his wife yeah, this is only as his only friends and he was a huge influencer a huge innovator he innovated this whole concept of being able to show that there is an infinite found here in the finite. And that's been our job ever since. Next week, we'll move forward. Next week, we'll see Avraham, the first Jew. The first Jew. Because what last week, we started Genesis. And Genesis starts off very happy. But it ends very sad, because the world goes lower and lower. This week's parsha starts off very sad. The world being depraved, but start but ends on a high note with the birth of Abraham and Noah and his children being the progenitors of, of the human existence. So Genesis, good to bad, Noah, bad to good, next week parish next week's parsha, lechicha, all good all the time. It's a, a happy parsha. Positivity, positivity, positivity. You want to feel good? Come to next week's class. It's my my plug. Positivity, positivity, positivity. We live with Avraham and his wife Sarah, Sarah, the whole week long. Tremendous positive. He's not just an innovator, he's a doer. He's, a, he's, a, he's an active monotheist. So we'll study next week. So thank you so much thank for you. coming. Have a wonderful week and Shabbat Shalom. My pleasure.